Would you please join me as I pray? With your eyes closed and as we prepare our hearts to receive, I'm going to just ask you right where you're sitting to practice a little body posture with me, allowing our bodies to communicate to God and to our own hearts. I'm just going to ask you to raise both hands might be a little uncomfortable for you. I'm just inviting you to step into this space with me, raising both hands, just so you you can understand this before I begin to pray. This This is a statement of surrender. You know, like in the old movies, come out with your hands up. We've got the place surrounded, you know. We want to come into God's presence with this posture today. So our Father, here we are, your people wanting to understand more fully what it means to surrender to you. I'm asking God that in this season of fasting and prayer that we've been in, as we've been hungering for you, I pray that we would be the sort of people that with hands up, with the whole of our lives lifted up to you, would say, God, we don't, we don't wanna think our own thoughts or speak our own words. We don't wanna have control over our own lives anymore. We want to as it were, we want to have died and we want Christ to live in and through us. We wanna be your people. I pray that today, God, where we're holding back, where we're still striving under our own effort and experiencing the exhaustion of that, I pray that today you would open our hands and help us to release, to experience the rest that is found in your heart. So here we are. Thank God we need you. We need you, Jesus, to be our great high priest. We need to be exposed and we need to be embraced so that we might finally experience rest. Would you come and move in our midst as we study this word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been to that spot where you're just worn out, thinned out, exhausted and wondering, I don't, know, I don't know if I've got anything left in the tank. I'm not sure that I'm going to make it. We've been there physically, perhaps. I remember running high school track and there were regularly these moments where I felt like I've got nothing left, I can't keep going. But more than just a tough physical workout, more than just being brought to the end of ourselves physically, it's like that emotional reality where all of a sudden you're, you're in a system that is chaotic. You're looking around and things are kind of a mess. And then you realize that the internal landscape is currently mirroring the external landscape. That you feel as chaotic internally as the world seems to be externally. And it's when we're in those moments where everything feels like it's in turn, where if we're honest, we're tempted just to kind of throw in the towel. I don't know if I can keep lining up and doing this. I'm just tired. I'm tired emotionally, I'm tired spiritually. My legs have grown weak and I'm not sure that I still have it. There's a lot that we don't know about the audience that is receiving this sermonic letter. It's kind of a letter, it's kind of a sermon as we're studying the book of Hebrews, and we don't know a lot about the audience, but we can glean from the context of this letter that this preacher, this writer, is assuming that his audience is experiencing that. He is consistently speaking into places throughout the whole of this letter as we're gonna keep studying it where they just feel like I'm kind of at the end of myself and the external chaos and pressures of the world are beginning to be mirrored internally and I kind of think maybe I'm just done. 
And into that space, he is speaking hope and encouragement by fixing people's eyes back on Jesus and saying, Jesus is better. And if we see him for who he is, it actually will provide the support and the strength you need where you feel weak and thinned out. And so this morning, if, if that's you, you're in good company and this author has a word directly for your heart where you feel the chaos of the world internally most pressingly. I want you to consider that this morning because that's the place that he wants to speak to. And as we consider the way that he's been building his argument, I just want you to consider the way chapters one, two, and three are gonna funnel right into what we're about to do in chapter four. So if you've been with this, let me just jog your memory. Chapter one, we said Jesus is far better than anything that is flashy or powerful in the world. He is better and he's higher. He's higher than the angels. He's higher than anything that is flashy and powerful. Chapter two, and he's with you. So he's greater than anything that's powerful or flashy, and he stands with you. Chapter three, so consider him today in the context of community. He's higher, he's with you, think about it. Chapter four, when you do, what we will find is this, rest is actually available. It is possible in a system that is shot through with chaos and confusion and challenge, which might be your home or your workplace or the whole of the world, right? We feel it around us. It is possible to live and breathe in a context like that and not have it mirrored in the internal geography of our lives. It's possible to be a soul at rest. It's possible. And what this text is going to show us is that it's possible as we are exposed and embraced to experience rest. And I want to go on the journey with us from anxious toil, from chaos internally to rest. And I want this, this author, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to lead us as our guide. So, to all those who are weary, <laughs> I've got good news for you. Rest is available and we're gonna see just how this morning. So first off, in the, in the first portion of this chapter, we're gonna see that rest is available, but it's not a guarantee. And as we see this, this reality at the front end, that rest is available, but it's not a guarantee, you're gonna feel that there's tension baked into this passage. It is actually slowly being ratcheted up that by the conclusion of the first portion of this chapter, we're gonna feel more frantic than we were at the start if we're reading it correctly. So you, you might come in feeling anxious, and I'm telling you rest is available. If we study the first portion accurately, you're gonna get to the end and feel like, well, I feel worse than when I started. So stick with me and let me just let that out of the bag on the front end so you're not like, what is he doing to me? But then we're gonna see how the Lord resolves this reality. Rest is available, but it's not a guarantee. So he starts off in verse one, and in essence what he's gonna say is, as he's introducing this idea, rest is available, but it's not a guarantee. What he says is be terrified. <laughs> be terrified because you might miss it. This isn't like FOMO, this is like TOMO terror of, of missing out. Like if I miss out on this, this is awful. It starts with a real serious warning. Let me show it to you in verse one. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, but that word literally can be mean, be terrified. Let us be terrified, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
So he's starting off and he's saying there is this promise of rest and it's available, but baked in is this tension and this reality is that it's not a guarantee. So he's starting by saying, listen, rest is available for your soul. I need you to feel the weight of this. You need to be terrified that you're gonna miss this. Have you ever just missed something wonderful and felt the sadness and the regret, the heartache? It's a silly example, but I was remembering, this is the first time I've been able to just say it out loud because it was so sad to me. <laughs> Last year, I got to take my middle son to the Texas A&M Alabama game with my parents' season tickets. Okay, yeah, and there's a few in the room. Started the fourth quarter, it wasn't looking so good. It was late, it was a Saturday night. I was preaching the next morning. Yeah, you might know where this is going. <laughs> Crowd was getting a little rowdy around us. My son was kind of upset and tired. And I was like, you know what, buddy? We can go. We don't have to stay. And he was like, okay, let's do it. We walked all the way down. We get out, and all of a sudden, there's some cheering. Then there's some louder cheering. <laughs> then it's like the ground is shaking beneath us as we're getting in the car. We're turning on the, the dial, and all of a sudden, it's like this great, you may have seen it. It's where everybody floods the field and goes nuts. And me and my son were both trying not to cry all the way home. Like, <laughs> like I can't believe. And I was trying to keep a strong face because I wanted it to be so wonderful for him. I was like, it was great, buddy. We got like the good stuff, you know? <laughs> and I actually haven't been able to talk about it out loud until now, so thank you. <laughs> um, you know that moment where you're on the outside of the joy? Like you're outside, the joy is over there and I'm outside over here because I just missed it. I missed it. This author loves his people enough to start by saying, listen, rest is available and I need you to be terrified because you might miss it. You might live out your days experiencing unrest and worry and anxiety and tension and a lack of joy and contentment, you might do that. You might miss all of the beauty that Jesus is willing to deliver into your soul real time. You might miss it. And so I'm just gonna start and be honest. You need to have some, some fear that you're gonna miss that. You see, he starts to ratchet up the tension right from the start because he doesn't want his people to miss the rest that he's delivering. And then he explains the two ways that we will miss the rest if we're not careful. The first is this. He says it's, it's actually, it's possible to have a non-beneficial interaction with the gospel if we listen, or pardon me, if we hear but we don't listen. Let me, sh let me show it to you. He's saying it's actually possibly interacting with the good news of Jesus and have it have no benefit to your soul because you're hearing things, but you're not actually listening to them. Look at verse two in the way that he says this. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not unified by faith with those who listened. You see, he's saying so there's the good news came to them. He's talking about this, this generation that was led out by Moses. He's using the example of the Old Testament, uh, the people of God being set free from slavery but not making it all the way to the promised land. And he said the reason was they, they experienced the power of God but they didn't actually listen to his voice. They heard but they didn't listen with faith and as a result, they missed all of the beauty and the promise that he had for them. It is possible to have a non-beneficial interaction with the good news of Jesus. And it happens when we're hearing it, but we're not listening. 
It's those moments where my boys are on the couch watching Dude Perfect, and I come in with some instructions for them. Like, hey, you need to take the laundry out of the dryer, you need to fold it, and then you need to make sure that the dishes get put, out of, get put back from the dishwasher. And they're going, yep, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then like six minutes later, nothing has happened. Like 26 minute la- minutes later, nothing has happened. Then I finally, I've realized in time that there's a difference between hearing something and listening to it. And so now the routine is I come in and I say, will you please hit pause? Okay, please hit pause. Yeah, pause. And then when the TV is off, and I say, now look at me with your face. And when they look at me, the laundry needs to be taken out, the dish. Because there's a very different experience between hearing something and listening to something. And it's silly in part when you're talking about a 10-year-old watching his favorite YouTube star, but the truth is we are no different. We are a distracted people who are so fascinated with lesser loves that Jesus is speaking freely to us and we're like, "Uh uh uh-huh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But meanwhile, the, the wheels are still running on all the things that we're trying to manage as we hold the whole world together by our own strength. And in a sense, he's going, hit pause and look at me and listen. You see, the Israelites missed out, that the wilderness generation missed out on the rich blessings of God because they were hearing things, but they weren't listening. And he's saying, be aware that you can be really close to the good news. You can sit in worship. You can nod and you can kind of play along. You can interact with the people of God in ways that look like you're, you're there, but you can still have everything still running internally and not actually be listening to the freedom-inducing word that God has for you. Beware. And then he, he talks about not just listening to it, but the way that we ought to respond. And I just want to show you in verses 6 and 11 that he's showing that the fabric of belief and obedience is inseparable. Or alternatively, disbelief and disobedience. They're actually one and the same. They're not two different things. Let me see if I can show this to you in verse six and 11. It says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, enter this rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And then he says again in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But the interesting thing in the verse that we were just reading was he said they didn't enter the rest because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Which raises the question, which is it? Why is it that some are missing out on rest? In verse two, he says, because they weren't united by faith. In verse six and verse 11, it says, because they didn't obey. And yet, we're left wondering, well, which which is it? Is it disbelief or is it disobedience? To which the author of the Hebrews says, is there a difference? Is there a difference between disbelief and disobedience? The scriptures would actually argue that no, these things, I, I had a New Testament professor that, that, insisted on calling, when, when dealing with faith and works, he just, he had melded it into a single word. In his class, it was faith works. Faith works. Because he wanted to keep helping us understand that faith is always working, and works don't exist. Real works that please the heart of God don't exist without faith, that they are intricately, intimately linked. They cannot be separated. And so, here, here's, here's the argument that's being made by the author of Hebrews. 
He's saying rest is available, but it's not a guarantee. And the way that you will miss what Jesus is willing to deliver to your soul is that you'll either hear but not listen or you'll listen but not obey. You'll listen and, and, and you won't trust what it is that he has to say. He's saying in that space, you can have all of the right answers. You can have all of the right theology and you can be a soul shot through with endless anxious toil, wondering if you've done enough, if you're okay, if you can hold it all together. You will never experience the blessings of the promised land here and now because you're missing out on the rest that's available. Do you feel the tension getting turned up? I told you the front end has tension baked in. The first thing that he's saying is be afraid. You might miss this rest. Well, he does alternatively tell us what the rest looks like. And I just want to show that to you in verses 3 through 5 and then in 8 through 10. This is the promised rest. And, and he connects it to God's own rest. Look at verse 3 through 5. He says this, for, for we who have believed enter that rest. So once again, you get the tension. He's talking about belief, obedience later on. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So he's making this emphasis on the rest is my rest. He's quoting this passage a couple of times, God speaking, talking about my rest. And then he goes back to Genesis 2 in the creation of the world and says, and it was on the seventh day that God rested. Now Hebrew scholars will tell you there's something distinct about the seventh day of creation than all the other days. And that it is that there is no evening and morning on the seventh day. And so they, they make the argument with some consistency that God is making it plain that on the seventh day, he enters into rest and that day never ends for him. And that's why later on he's talking about you might enter into my rest or you might not, but listen, my repose, my posture is one of rest. So what we're talking about is this reality. The thing that is available to us is the fact that God is in this place where he's going, I am the blessed or the happy God. Everything unfolds according to my will and everything is going to be perfect and okay. He is never anxious. He is never unnerved. The chaos of any one particular moment doesn't cause his blood pressure to spike. God is at rest. And what is available is the entrance into his own rest. It could be yours. It could be it could be the inner state of your heart is that his rest becomes your rest. That is what is possible in this text. And in verses eight through 10, he talks about what that looks like. For if Joshua had given them rest, he's once again talking about they, they ultimately did enter the promised land, those people, but they still were waiting for a future rest because God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What's he saying here? He's saying when you enter into the heart of God, which is available to you, 
you experience the grand exhale of everything is going to unfold according to his perfect and his goodwill. I don't have to manage it. I don't have to hold it all together. I can finally rest from my works. I don't have to keep churning in the same way. Okay. Verses 1 through 11. Do you feel the argument that has been built? Rest is available, but it's not a guarantee. The rest that is available is God's own rest. You don't have to strive or churn ever again. But I need you to feel the weight of it. You could miss it. You could miss it by hearing but not listening or listening and not trusting. It's possible to miss it, to be really close to it and never experience it. It's possible. And so here's the question. How might we enter into this rest? There are two things. There are two things that he's gonna explore. And I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, the first is gonna make the tension grow even more. We're just gonna ratchet it up one last time. The first is this. We have to be exposed by God's word if we're gonna finally experience rest. We actually have to be exposed. Look at verse 12 with me. He's turning the corner right from the point of promising that entering God's rest, you can strive, you can enter, you can be a part of God's rest. And then he says, for, and he begins to link it causally, showing us how this works. And he says in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. He begins to talk about the word of God and what it's gonna do in us. And in verse 12 and 13, he's gonna tell us a couple of things about the word of God. He's gonna tell us what it is, what it does, and what the results are. What is it? It's living and active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of God is alive and effective and sharp. Means that when we open the word of God, we're in touch with something, not that's static, but it's moving, it's coursing with life. And it's, when he says that it's, that his word in verse 12, that he says it is living and it's active. The word for active is the same word for energetic for us. It literally means effective. It accomplishes things. It's going to accomplish what it intends to accomplish. And then it says it's sharper. It's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. Sharper, literally it's, he says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So what he means is it doesn't require swinging. It doesn't require multiple. It's not like you have to hack with the word of God. That's not what, he's saying it's sharper. It's like scalpel imagery. And I'm no surgeon, I know some of you are, but I understand that there's like a number one scalpel that's for biopsies, just taking things off the surface. And there's a number two scalpel, as I understand it, that that separates down, it starts cutting away organs and tissues. And he's saying the word of God is a a type two scalpel. Like it's it's gonna cut deep. And it doesn't require swing after swing, it's sharp and it's gonna cut right in. It's living and it's active and it's sharp. The word of God, when we interact with it, is going to operate on us. And he says this is what it it does as a result. It pierces and it discerns. Do you see it in the second half of verse 12? Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, Piercing, that's another word that's only used here in the New Testament. He's like really dumping out his thesaurus to try to get us to think about the Bible. He's going, listen, it's sharper, it pierces, so it's gonna puncture at times. It's gonna feel like, oh, that went through. And then he says, and it discerns. And interestingly, it's 
Also, the only usage in the New Testament, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I just want you to feel how deep this level two scalpel goes. He goes, it cuts all the way down to your thoughts. So like beyond just your actions and your words, but it starts to help you see what's happening at the level of your thought life. And then he goes deeper and he goes, and the intentions of your heart. Think about that. What you were intending at a heart level before you formed your thoughts, before they become words and actions, like all the way down at that point, that's what the word of God will deal with you on. We've been praying for no hidden sin as we've been fasting and praying. And uh, I must say there's something about sitting with someone who is beginning to wrestle with the nature of their own sin, particularly someone who's been reading the scriptures. Because the scriptures do something to our confession of sin. It changes. When someone begins to take steps into meaningful community, and maybe they're new to this understanding of what it means to be a Christian community that's saturated in the word and confessing, they're just starting. They begin at the level of confessing things that were said or done. But the interesting thing is that when the word of God begins to work in us, all of a sudden we realize the ugliest things The ugliest and most sinful things about our souls are things that we didn't say and that we never did. It's oftentimes the intentions. It can even be the intentions around the good things. You know, I was this uncomfortable place where the scriptures have, as I've been praying for no hidden sin, have unearthed some places in me that I've had to name to my brothers, the other pastors on the staff where moments where people would look and say, oh, how, how good, like how loving, how right. And what I'm telling them is in that moment, I need you to know that the intention of my heart was like ugly. I was displaying love in that moment, but underneath it, I was crawling with disdain. And you see what the word of God does is it says, I see what no one else sees. And God's calling to us. He's going, rest is available, but listen, the path to rest is the path of exposure. The word of God showing you who you really are, which is terrifying. It will discern even your intentions, and what's the outcome? The outcome in verse 13, and I need you to hear this. This is the last moment where the tension is ratcheted to its fullest, where we go, okay, okay, let me go. Because he says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This word for exposed, yet another word. It's the only usage in the New Testament, and it is an intense word. Let me tell you about it. The word literally means it's someone who is on death row or someone who is about to be executed and it means grabbed and held so that your neck is exposed to be put to an end. It's the exposure of the neck because you're about to be undone. You feel it. He says we are down and laid out before the one we must give account to. And as I've been slowly working through this, by the time I get to the end of verse 13, it's like, oh 
okay, you started by saying there's rest available. And what you told me is to be terrified that I might miss it and to strive to enter it and to listen and obey. But then you tell me that as the word of God begins to speak in us, what we will experience is total and complete exposure down to the core of our souls where we go, even my best actions are filthy rags because my intentions are always a mixed offering. And here I am exposed and awaiting my execution before the one I must give account. I don't know about you, (laughs) but that doesn't feel like rest. He's saying, here's the path to rest. Step one, you have to be exposed by the word of God. Friend, before we can take the final step, have you been honestly and wholeheartedly exposed by the word of God? Are you aware of how desperately sinful you are? that even our best offerings are twisted at the core. He takes us right to the end where we're tempted to despair. And in his wisdom, at the very moment, he gives us what our soul most needs. Exposed and ready to give an account, he says in verse 14, since then, We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been able, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, previously he said, let us fear. And then he said, let us strive. But when Jesus steps onto the scene, he just says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast the declaration that Jesus is our high priest, the one that passed through the heavens to the earth and said, I will function as your high priest. The high priest makes the sacrifice and he spreads the blood on the altar and says, God, there with me. Look at the sacrifice, don't look at them. Accept their prayers, accept their pleas, accept accept their lives because I am standing before you as the one that builds a bridge between the people and God. And what Jesus is, is the great high priest who says, I will make a way for them into your presence. He is the great high priest. And for that reason, in verse 16, it's the last command of the text. And I want you to feel the way the tension is resolved. What was let us be afraid and let us strive, when Jesus shows up on the scene becomes, let us hold to our confession, and then in verse 16, hear this one. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That time of need, literally, it's not, if you translate it directly, it's just, and the timely moment, and the moment where it's needed most. So it, need is not actually the primary thing. It's, it's the moment, the timeliness of the moment. Like, oh, this is the moment where I needed grace and mercy. And in essence, what he's saying is this. Every time you allow the word of God to actually expose you, you will be in this place of what do I do? I am exposed and I have to give an account. And then he says, but let me tell you the type of throne that you're given an account before. It's a throne of grace. 
and he will give mercy and grace, favor and forgiveness to the one in their time of need that comes boldly. You see, we actually have the opportunity to have confident intimacy with God because of what the great high priest has done. You see, the path to rest for our souls is to be truly exposed. When you're exposed, what you finally realize is this, you can't hold it together. You came in thinking, I can do it. I'm just gonna keep striving. I can manage all of the chaos. By my own might, I can do it with enough works and enough effort. And he goes, listen, let my scalpel do its work. You can't. You're exposed. You're laid out. You've been affixed and prepared. You actually are ready for execution. (laughs) Exposed by God's word. Embraced by God's son. When you experience his embrace daily and repeatedly, the gospel being applied to the places of your exposure, not your pretty facade, but your ugly intentions. When the gospel is applied there over and over and over, what you're doing is you're entering the rest of the Father. You're beginning to realize like no matter how messy it is, it's gonna be okay. He's on the throne and he's making things right. You see, I think many of us have have come into this room with different conceptions of God, different experiences with God. Some of us have experienced embrace without exposure. It's like that cheap grace. You know, everybody's good, you're good, we're good, it doesn't matter what you do. And and quite frankly, in that moment, intimacy doesn't build with God because we always feel like a fake, we always feel like there's unspoken realities that are still in the system. Like, if, if there's actually no standard, is God's word actually true? And is he, we, we ultimately don't experience intimacy in that space. Some of us are from an exposure but no embrace background. Heavy on truth. It's all about truth and it's very incisive and strong. And all of a sudden we start to feel like, I have to do more. I have to try harder. There's always guilt and there's always condemnation because I'm not sure that God is pleased with me. Listen, brothers and sisters, this text is inviting you into real gospel rest. The gospel exposes and embraces at the same time. The good news that you really are worse than you ever imagined. And you really are more loved than you ever dared to hope. And when both of those things are simultaneously true, you can have low blood pressure You can be at rest when everyone else, when all the chaos is thronging, you can be a soul at rest when you're exposed and when you're embraced. I'd love to pray for us. So I'm gonna invite you to pray, but I want you to start by praying as we we pray this truth into our bones that by, by the Spirit of God, we'd be able to believe this good word. So would you just take a moment and would you confess the places where you have experienced deep unrest? Where you have been most anxious? Where you have felt the disbelief in God's goodness most pressingly in your life? And would you tell him about it? Would you repent of those places?
God, we are a people given to striving, to trying to manage, to trying to, to present ourselves as having it all together. I pray that by your grace, by the power of your word, you would expose us. You would take us to the end of ourselves and help us to recognize that we do not have it all together. It's not until we are made aware of that that we can finally taste rest because otherwise we will keep thinking we can do this and we can't. And by your spirit, would you help us right now to receive the love of Jesus at the point of our greatest embarrassment and sin. At the point of the thing that we've tried to keep hidden and we've tried to manage for so long. Jesus, right now, would you come to each man and woman in this room and help them to feel your embrace, your mercy and your favor that flows from your throne. Would you help us to be a people at rest? Thank you that it's available. Help us to live into it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.